Those feelings of belonging and the informal social connectedness were really key parts of social capital in terms of protecting people's mental health. Transformation would mean society begins to recognize there are things we can choose to do that will be economically costly, but will put us in a path to reduce the numbers of shocks. There are some people in communities who keep standing up and they keep going. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. It is wonderful to see all of you in person um, for this exciting Sydney Environment Institute event. My name is Justin C. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in climate change adaptation at the Sydney Environment Institute. I am very delighted to introduce and to launch this new SEI series on climate change adaptation. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognize that they flourished sustainably on this continent for several millennia, skillfully managing the landscape and protecting country for future generations. Sovereignty has never been ceded. I recognize that respect for traditional knowledge and promoting the rights of indigenous communities must be at the heart of responding to the climate crisis. To get things going tonight, I'd like to welcome you all to the first event of the SEI's new series on climate change adaptation. And it's very fitting to talk about climate change adaptation nowadays, you know, with all the flooding, heat waves, storms, sea level rise, and other climate-induced hazards that are affecting our communities and our businesses around the world. It is very important to have this dialogue on climate action to create awareness, to promote active engagement in climate action, both locally, sub-locally, and nationally across different sectors and stakeholders. And climate change adaptation has been a major focus of the SEI. We have convened a climate disaster and adaptation group across the University of Sydney that has grown tremendously over the past couple of years. Just last year, SEI researchers were able to secure two major grants to undertake research on climate adaptation to strengthen community resilience in preparation for climate disasters. So we're really hoping to build on this momentum by launching this new series, specifically dedicated to discussing opportunities and issues related to climate change adaptation. Tonight is our pilot. A panel of experts will give us an introduction to climate change adaptation and a general overview of the relationship between justice, adaptation, and the social realm. But as climate change adaptation is a multifaceted process, we're also going to touch upon other sectors such as finance, infrastructure, food, communities in our next panel events. So please make sure to follow the SEI on our social media accounts and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date for these upcoming panel events in the series. Without further ado, let's move on to our panel discussion tonight. I'm very pleased to welcome 
the director of Sydney Environment Institute, Professor David Schlossberg, to introduce our guest speakers. Thanks to uh, Dr. Justin C. Uh, we are so uh, lucky, privileged, uh, and happy to have Justin with us here to help us organize all of this work that we have been doing the last couple of years uh, on climate change, disasters, and adaptation. Uh, it's a bit unfortunate that this is a major area of focus uh, for us, um, but it's something that we are not shying from. It's crucial that the university is not only working on the sort of emissions reduction side of things, but SEI in particular has been working around climate disasters, climate adaptation, resilience, um, social capital and infra infrastructure, as we'll hear about today, all of these crucial issues about community, community response uh, to disasters and to climate change. So thanks to Justin for the intro. Thanks for his work and the work uh, of the SEI staff, our program manager and events coordinator, uh, as well as we put together not just this event, but this whole series uh, on climate adaptation. So I'm not going to labor through another introduction. Uh, I will just uh, get down to a discussion with our distinguished guests, and I'll start by introducing them. I guess introduce myself first. For those who don't know me, uh, I'm David Schlossberg. I'm the director of the, the SEI. I'm a professor of environmental politics. My work um, for decades now, getting old, is... Uh, uh, has been on environmental justice, on climate justice, on justice in adaptation, work with the city of Sydney on um, the development of the adaptation policy here, including a deliberative uh, democratic process for that, work with Resilient Sydney uh, on uh, the Resilient Sydney process uh, and community experiences of shock events years ago before they got more frequent and more ugly. Um, so I've been doing quite a bit of that work and it's just, um, it's been quite, uh, I don't know, reassuring in some way um, and just really engaging to see the, the number of researchers across campus um, from senior researchers to ECRs, grad students, uh, honor students interested in this whole sphere of not just disasters, but what it means for communities, how communities can react, how communities can react constructively uh, to uh, to climate disaster uh, and to resilience. So that's me, uh, Professor Daniel Aldrich is visiting us. Uh, professor Aldrich is an award-winning author and professor of comparative public policy at Northeastern University. Uh, it's got a focus on social capital, on disaster recovery, environment, energy, and resilience. He's director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program and co-director of the Global Resilience Institute at Northeastern in Boston. He's published five books, including Building Resilience and Black Wave, more than 90 peer-reviewed articles. He's written op-eds for the New York Times, CNN, HuffPost, and many other media outlets. He spent more than five years on the ground in India, Japan, and Africa, carrying out field work. That work um, on social capital, as you'll hear, uh, and disasters and others, has been funded by the Fulbright Foundation, the National Science Foundation in the US, as we mentioned yesterday, which is not an easy thing for social scientists to get, by the way. Um, the Abe Foundation, the Rasmussen Foundation, and the Japan Foundation, among others. Uh, and in 2021, he was Klein Lecturer at Northeastern University. And beaming in from Lismore, uh, our good friend, Dr. Joe Longman. Uh, Joe is a senior research fellow at the University Center for Rural Health, based in Lismore, and an SCI member and part of the, cli the climate uh, disaster and Adaptation Research Network. 
She's a social scientist with over 20 years experience in both qualitative and mixed methods research and evaluation. She's passionate about improving the health of people living in rural Australia. Since catastrophic flooding in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales back in 2017, um, she's been researching the mental health impacts of flooding uh, and climate change more broadly. She's currently involved in one of those projects that Justin mentioned, which is a qualitative project exploring communities self-organizing during and following disaster. She's also the lead author uh, on a piece that's just been released, well, preprint, but it's there. It's a, it, it'll be available soon, um, which is a great piece on the experience of rural New South Wales communities, uh, their mental health struggles, uh, their the way that they have suggested we deal best with climate anxiety, and that is through community action, community resilience planning, um, the building of social infrastructure, uh, as Daniel will explain. So we're going to talk tonight not just about social capital, um, but about the intersection of three key concepts and practices, climate adaptation, justice, climate justice, environmental justice, uh, and the role of social capital in both of those. So if anyone's been following the work of SCI over the last few years, you'll know that we've been doing quite a bit of work uh, in this space, especially at that intersection of environmental and climate justice and climate change adaptation. We've been doing that work theoretically and we published uh, in that space. We've been doing that at the local level, as I've said, um, in very applied ways. And we've also been very involved with Future Earth Australia uh, and with the Academy of Science and the development of their National Just Adaptation Strategy. And I may talk a little bit about that at some point this evening, but I encourage uh, everyone to read that strategy. Uh, and then, as Justin said, we have had an ever-growing number uh, of members in this climate disaster and adaptation theme, uh, again, looking particularly at community responses to disasters like floods uh, and fires. And this is where Professor Aldrich is important and globally leading work on social capital and social infrastructure fits, uh, and where we're really trying to engage and learn from that work and apply some of the lessons learned. So we'll start with Daniel uh, and start with some broad introductory questions. Um, and really the first is, how do you think about climate adaptation? Right? Why is it necessary to think about adaptation? So this is a huge question, which we could probably talk for the next three days on. And I'm assuming everyone in this room agrees there is something to adapt to, which is I'm assuming, unlike other countries I've been in recently, that you do agree that we have changed the planet's atmosphere, right? We have, in a sense, uh, cooked our own goose, we might say, in American English, at least. So, so we agree on that. We have a lot of things we could do now as societies, whether developed societies like America, Japan, and Australia, developing societies like those I study oftentimes in Africa and East, Southeast Asia, we recognize now that we have current impact of that climate change we're dealing with almost all the time. Uh, so I can talk back in 2005 when I was actually the first uh, in North America recognized climate refugees from uh, Hurricane Katrina. And we had to flee a city that was underwater and being flooded after a disaster there. Or now we see legal status as well. For example, here in Australia and elsewhere, attempts at climate refugees. So do we respond currently to the problems we're seeing, but also to the future? Adaptation means we're not just thinking about what are we doing today to keep our feet from getting wet when it floods or our houses and our livestock from being burned when, it, when there's a fire, but how are we getting ready for the future as well? 
and I'll talk about this in a few th minutes, I think, more the different types of things, but the simple reality is there's a huge spectrum of things we are doing and not doing. Starting with what we're not doing, which is most societies, I would call that incrementalism or business as usual, and actual transformation, which in my mind is the very end of the spectrum of things we are doing or not doing, that is the hardest to achieve. So between not doing anything, which just says, well, look, we'll work it out eventually, some new tech company will come along and solve our problems for us, some app will handle that. And we can talk about the real technology and a lot of the reasons we don't do actions or pushback from climate firms, firms that benefit from uh, using the climate like fossil fuel companies. So the, the range of adaptation hopefully ends in transformation. When the societies that we live in alter not just our individual behaviors, which is easy for a company to say, but rules of the game. How do we allow companies to operate? How do we allow cities to build? So in that spectrum right now, all of that fits, I think, in the realm of adaptation. Let's talk a bit more about that, right? So let's think about different types uh, of adaptation. Can you talk us through some of those different types? Um, in particular, I'm, I'm really interested because you, you didn't mention maladaptation, but there certainly is this um, this question, and, and I mean, you got to some of this in, in the discussion yesterday about uh, gray infrastructure, um, and then what you see as just adaptation or transformational adaptation. Yeah, so my favorite way of thinking about this is incrementalism, and then mitigation, adaptation, and transformation, in that order from easiest and less, most, most likely to happen to hardest to do. So incrementalism means politicians tell us we'll solve it next term, we're working on it right now, there's a committee working on that, we'll get to it next, right? basically nothing business as usual is happening. Mitigation means though we recognize there are things going on that we can change to some degree. So we can mitigate the impact of some of these things. We can build a seawall, for example. We can build, as many societies have built, gray infrastructure, large concrete buildings. We could build concrete homes, right, in areas that are like, like they have a fire, for example. Uh, we, could, we could build all kinds of things that societies can make those shocks less likely to impact them as the shocks continue to come. That's mitigation. Adaptation means we're actually now trying to change what we do. That is to say, we're changing the institutions that we have, broadly speaking. Um, so, for example, repetitively flooded communities along the coast of New Jersey and Texas would be bought out, and those communities moved back away from the coast. Rather than right now, which is pretty regular, we simply have them give them money to rebuild through insurance and other things as well. So adaptation would mean we recognize that we can move some of those things. Transformation would actually be completely different. Transformation would mean society begins to recognize there are things we can choose to do that will be economically costly, but will put us on a path to reduce the numbers of shocks. I'm just getting away from each individual shock, but getting us away from things. So for example, we might start banning cars in downtown areas, as some cities have already started to do. We might require cities like Adelaide to stop sprawling out 85 kilometers, right, in, in both directions. We might think about having vertical growth in areas, infill in cities, rather than allowing new buildings to be built. We might require all new things to be electrified, rather than allowing natural gas or coal-fired, which we're still building in many societies. So in that spectrum, I think transformation is the hardest, will require the most political will, and I think most societies are kind of in the incremental mitigation stage right now. What you mentioned as adaptation, they're doing things that are politically expedient, building a big concrete seawall and saying, look, we're ready for the next tsunami, we're ready for the next flood, whether or not those are actually good for that local environment or push the problem someplace else, as they often do, or whether or not in the long term it's a good idea to destroy the ecosystem to build a big gray seawall, being unanswered questions for society. But there's a political economy here as well, right? So those local firms who get money from building gray walls, right? They're happy to push us to do that rather than thinking through other things we could do on the transformational scale that might take more time, more deliberate effort. And this is where the thing I'm trying to do right now on social capital and social infrastructure might come into play. 
how do we change society from the bottom up so that we can work collectively that requires trust and action, but linked to decision makers, that's vertical ties, to make decisions that we think are not just in the short term, the mitigation, not even adaptation, but really making changes to society that will last. Joe, um, bringing you in here, and given this extensive experience, and as you can imagine, a, a researcher working on mental health issues in Lismore about flooding, getting hit by floods. Um, I mean, it's been an immersive experience to say the least um, for Joe, but in terms of that experience, in terms of research and personal experience uh, of living directly with these impacts of climate change on the ground, why do you think um, this idea of social capital uh, or social infrastructure, as Daniel's been talking about, why is that critical for building resilience and just adaptive responses? Yeah, thanks for that question. And before I say anything about this, I just want to acknowledge that I'm coming to you today from the lands of the Widjibal Wibal people of the Bunjalung Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people with us this evening or listening to this as a recorded podcast in the future. So, so David, this question is about um, social capital and how it might be critical for building resilience um, in communities. And I, I, I want to start by saying that the work I've been doing for the last six years has been quite focused on um, looking at the resilience to the mental health impacts of climate change. So I'm a, a rural health researcher um, and the work that I've been doing has really focused quite heavily on building resilience to the mental health impacts of climate change. Um, and I think what we've been able to demonstrate in the studies that we've done here, um, in particular, a study that we did following catastrophic flooding in 2017, which you talked about a bit in the introduction, David. Um, so a cross-sectional survey that we did in uh, northern New South Wales, um, following about six months after the floods in 2017. And, and we measured um, people's exposure to the flood, but we also measured a number of social capital measures. So we, we asked people to tell us about um, how engaged they felt in the community, what their sense and feelings of belonging were in the community, what their level of trust and their experience of living in that particular community were. Um, and, and what we found from that study quite clearly was that the more social capital you have, the more protected your mental health. So that people who, who responded to that survey, we had about two and a half thousand people take part in that survey. Um, it was pretty clear that people who had more social capital had better mental health outcomes and people who had reduced amounts of social capital um, had worse mental health outcomes. Um, and what was clear from that, from that work is that across the whole population that we talked to, those feelings of belonging and the informal social connectedness were really key parts of social capital in terms of protecting people's mental health. And given that, as we've said, these sorts of extreme weather related events like flooding are going to be more intense and more frequent in the future, you know, having having the strengths like that in a community that might protect people's mental health down the track, because we know extreme weather related events have such a deleterious effect on people's mental health is really critical. Um, I did also want to mention another study uh, that um, that we've been working on. And um, as you mentioned, David, we've got a paper coming out on this very soon in the Journal of Climate Change and Health. Um, where we went into rural, a number of rural communities um, across New South Wales who had themselves had 
um, experiences of of climate change and in particular extreme weather related events. So bushfires, droughts and floods. And we talked to those communities about what they perceived would um, protect the mental health of their communities um, under these sorts of conditions. And a few things came out of that study, but in particular, a really strong sense that um, climate change is a shared experience, right? It's something that as a community, there's a, a sense of, of, of what it's like for everybody. It's something that we're all experiencing together. Um, and these communities talked um, quite frequently about the importance of, of action and community-led collaborative action where people work together and meet together and basically build social capital together, um, which, which then has these uh, really beneficial impacts down the track um, when, when facing something like an extreme weather event um, and also more generally facing climate anxiety. So people's anxiety and, and, uh, and, and worries about the future, the future of the planet, um, can be eased to an extent by um, taking some sort of action together. And part of that is about um, providing meaning and purpose um, in community, but also part of it is about building social capital and trust so that there's something to draw on in the community when, when taking action. So yeah. they're, they're the reasons why I think social capital is such a critical part of this picture. That study, I mean, I'm really looking forward to that, getting out and, and seeing the response to that. But to to hear from communities exposed to the impacts of climate change and suffering from the climate anxiety related to that, to hear them say democracy is an answer, right? Working together, community-based resilience. That's how we deal both with climate change and anxiety. That was just really powerful uh, to hear that from communities. So. Daniel, can you tell us just a bit more um, from your perspective about that relationship between social capital and adaptation, successful adaptation in your work? Yeah, so you know, several things I think I mentioned already back in 2005, our home was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. and had this very naive vision of what recovery would be like for us. I had this vision that the publisher's clearinghouse would come with a big check, either written by the insurance company or written by the government, and somehow we'd be back on our feet. I'm sad to say that neither the state came through, the government didn't help, and nor did the insurance company actually in the end. And what we noticed was that what happened soon after our house was destroyed was a series of phone calls and texts came in from people that we actually didn't know that well, but who had heard from friends or friends of friends that we were in trouble. And this was the first notice to me that during a shock, these kind of connections play a really critical role. Again, I assumed that you know we get the money and that the money really mattered. Actually, it turns out we never got any money from those, those organizations, but the people's support helped us get our kids, for example, back into school again, get me a new place to work, and even a new place to live. So the connections that we had got us resources, information, new tactics and strategies for handling the stress. I think for me, that was the opening to this idea that these connections somehow play a role. Not just that you know, it's nice to have friends, which is we all hopefully agree with that, but that there's some kind of deep process that social capital builds for us. And I would say that we've actually done research, in, in fact, like Joe has just said, uh, we actually studied one of the worst disasters recently, the Fukushima nuclear contamination in Japan. And there are 140,000 people were forced from their homes by a meltdown at three different reactors. And we studied a pop, about 1,000 of them over time, talking with them regularly and asking, what's helping you get through this, right? You can imagine the, 
the shock and anxiety you would feel, your home is now in a zone you can't get to. You may have been exposed to radiation and your kids are exposed to radiation. So your future is really uncertain. Your health is really uncertain. And just like Joe said, for those people that we talked to, it wasn't money that helped. It wasn't even being in good physical health. It was really having strong social connections that gave them that sense that we could do this together. Um, so that's one big aspect. We've also seen that, that social ties, social capital play these roles at all the stages of a crisis. But even before a shock arrives, let's say we know there's a fire coming during some kind of bushfire. We know that people do or don't listen to evacuation orders depending on trust. To what degree do you believe the information you're getting is real and accurate? So I don't know how many of you have gotten spam calls regularly. I get them all the time. I just got here a month ago. I get my phone is getting spam calls from people I've never met. So maybe you stop answering the phone after a while, or maybe you get emails that are hard to tell. Are they from the university? Are they from some organization? So that kind of moment when we don't really know what's real and what's not real anymore is, is devastating to us as individuals and to society as a whole. And our social ties are a really great way to help rebuild that trust. So when you talk to someone who can give you good advice, who knows you and you trust them and they trust you, they can tell you, by the way, there's still that food left over from lunch right on the side of your face, or you're trying that out right now in school, it's not going to work very well. The advice that we get from people before shocks, like to evacuate or not, it's much more powerful coming from someone that you trust. So the state can say over and over again, there's a fire coming, please leave. Or in my case, there's a hurricane coming, please leave. But we didn't listen until that information came from a trusted source. So too we found around the world, during fires, during COVID, a lot of the information that we get, well-meaning information that we get from the government or state doesn't land until it comes from someone that we trust. So during a shock, help from information is going to come from people in the network that you know already. And of course, you would think immediately and think, if there are people in your network you can't trust as much, people who say things that aren't true, that's where we get things like COVID denial, right? Or vaccine denial. People spreading information that isn't true in their own networks that trust them. So in my mind, a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now, future pandemics, climate change, the shocks like climate, whether it's here in Australia or in Japan, social capital is the first line of defense that we have. And the long-term one, any kind of defense that we can have against a fire, against a flood, against COVID, that's a one-shock kind of defense, right? It's a wall against the fire or the flood. It's a vaccine. But the reality is we're facing shocks in the future we can't see right now. We don't even know what's going to come down in five or 10 years, right? COVID 2040, whatever it's going to be. So we can't see those now, but the social networks that we have, the ties that we build, those are protected against all shocks, not just floods or evacuation from a contaminated zone. They help us during personal tragedies, like loss of a parent or a loved one. They help us during community tragedies like fires, right? And our research in Northeastern does this all the time. We regularly look for the role of these kinds of ties. And across time and space, they're the most protective of the resources that we can use against the shock. I'm thinking about the process that this working group went through in the development of this just adaptation strategy with Future Earth. And when a number of us were thinking about justice, we were coming at it from a fairly traditional theoretical justice point of view. We need to make sure that equity uh, is in here. We need to make sure that there's a role for, um, you know, for dealing with unequal representation to make sure more and more people uh, are represented. We need to make sure that we're building capacity of community um, and all of that as a part of adaptation planning. But we had a number of Aboriginal and First Nations participants in the working group, and they really pushed further um, and insisted on recognizing the value, not just of traditional knowledge on the land, but of traditional concepts of connection and kinship, hmm. and kinship with each other and kinship with humans, but beyond humans uh, as well. And it was a really powerful moment for this working group 
to be pushed that much further and to think not just of you know terms like social capital, but to think about millennia, as Justin said, of connectivity and of kinship uh, and of relationality and how crucial that is uh, to adaptation. So it's a powerful part of that, but it's interesting to see. I mean, of course, we're social scientists and we say, well, here's the data from Fukushima. And, but there is this history on this continent in particular um, that we can really tap into when it comes to exactly um, these kinds of connections. Um, I don't want, you don't have to respond to that. I was going to push a bit further and ask you to maybe talk a little bit more about social infrastructure, right? And that sort of, the, the, I mean, the embodiment of that kind of connection in people and what that does for adaptation. Yeah, my obsession now is thinking through, well, if these ties are so important, how do we get more of them, right? How do we get them to everybody, wherever they are, whatever society we are, whether rich or poor, right? A, new, a newcomer to the country or a longtime person here, how do we do that? And I was looking through information on what's called critical infrastructure, which is a fancy way of saying the government thinks these things are important. And there's actually a list of 16 types of critical infrastructure. Not one of them, not one, deals with the concept that these social ties are important. There's things like chemicals, there's energy, there's telecommunications. But on that list of 16 critical infrastructures, there's no mention of how do we build these ties or keep them going. So I would call this social infrastructure the places and spaces that build these kind of ties. So libraries, pubs, parks, right? Places of worship, right? Places that we spend time together with people that we do and don't know. And I think that's a really important part about social infrastructure is the idea of the following, that we often get some of our best ideas and best knowledge, not necessarily from people that we have a lot of time with, maybe family or friends or spouses, but people that we don't know as well. People from outside our field, outside our country, different linguistic or background, right? Those people we call in, in social science language, bridging social capital, which is a fancy way of saying you don't know them as well. And what we found in our research is that these kind of places, pubs, parks, uh, plazas, these can be places where we build those bridging ties because it's where we meet people in public that we haven't seen before. We see people playing with their dogs outside, taking, reading a book, taking a stroll. That gives us a little bit of faith, right? It's safe to go out then and walk around, or it's safe to go to that neighborhood. I don't know where that person is coming from, but I can see they're interacting with their kids or I don't know what culture they're from, but I can maybe, oh yeah, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. So these moments we have of contact with people who are different, our lab has found these places, this social infrastructure, it builds those kind of bridging ties. So my new obsession now here in Australia and elsewhere is figuring out how do we map these kind of places? Do we know where we have those pubs, plazas and parks? Do we know what kind of places have more synagogues, gurdwaras and mosques? And if we don't have them there, what are we doing to build them up? Or like we see in North America, are they not on the list of things that we first fund or first defund? Because right now in North America, if you're noticing in politics, some of the first things that are being cut as budgets are shrinking are libraries, for example, parks. These kind of places are the first to be losing their funding. So for me, the, the need comes from this idea that if we want to build these ties, we can do so through these facilities. We have to think about them carefully and openly. Joe. Thinking about the project that we're doing now, right? The 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 sort of spontaneous community reaction to the most recent floods. Do you see any overlap between that work, what what um, you all are finding in the Northern Rivers, and what Daniel was talking about about social infrastructure? Yeah, totally. And actually, I mean, I'm slightly obsessed with working out how things work in rural Australia, and. Um, I think the place of halls, you know, like a, a like the small in these little tiny places, they've all got a hall 
of some sort. And some of those halls are incredibly active and they function as as a place of really strong social infrastructure. And one of the things that's fascinating about the project that David's just talked about there, which is a project all about um, self-organising, community self-organising following a disaster like a flood. So we had massive floods here in 2022, as did lots of other places in the country. And the hall quite often becomes the absolute centre of everything happening, because partly because people know it and are connected to it. So there's a place-based function of of the hall as part of that social infrastructure. But it also becomes a a place for um, all of that self-organising. So people working together, problem-solving together. It's a place where people can come for, you know, to, to get food or water or work out how on earth they're going to fix communications or get fuel or all of those sorts of things. Um, and so it feels to me like the, the hall kind of quite often comes into its own then and becomes this sort of centre. Everybody's just drawn to it. They kind of know, just go to the hall, see what's going on there. You know, so how central that is for some places just ended up with it, like a massive whiteboard that they got from somewhere <laughs> in the hall. And they wrote the really key things about which roads were shut or, you know, how to try and get food or, or those those sorts of things that were absolutely critical. Um, so, yeah, I think um, social infrastructure is really important in terms of building social capital as part of a, you know, a prevention strategy or a mechanism to deal with getting communities ready and prepared for the next disaster but they they also can be absolutely critical at the time um which i, I think is fascinating yeah so this is a perfect example so i've never been to a rural hall in australia but thinking about that in terms of adaptation if you want people in your community to agree to something right if you want them all to be on board they have to know what the idea is and feel they're part of it right in a place like a hall or a library or a park that's exactly where you're going to have that moment for people in the community horizontally to agree and then to begin reaching out to vertical decision makers above them, how do we make sure that someone in authority, the mayor, the premier, whoever is above them, can agree with that? So I, that's a great way to think about this, right? If you want to adapt, not just mitigate, not just do incremental stuff, but really change with climate, we need to think through how are we all on board on this? Not just a few of us, the experts, or the top-down approach from the state. Mm -hmm. How are the average people in these communities, that is the normal person on the ground, how are they going to respond? Again, democracy, what an amazing tool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we'll open it up now. And now I'm feeling a responsibility to make this a hall uh, and to have people contribute and participate uh, and ask questions. So we've got one right up front. Well, I, I, my name's Eva Cox, and I've been doing this stuff for a very long time because I was involved in social capital stuff in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and actually did the Boyer lectures on them in 1995. We did this stuff. I hate to say it to you, but I was listening here to <laughs> stuff that I've heard for 30, 40, 50 years. The point the point I want to try, try and make is all of these things I can agree to, all of these things were part of what we were doing in the 70s and the 80s. It got killed off by neoliberal capitalism and we still need to fix it. All of those things you said here, I've heard them before. They disappeared when government stopped funding communities, when local government sort of lost its things, when local government started offloading its childcare and aged care services, when they privatised a lot of the stuff there, and they sort of just think that, and yes, they have to do it as a sort of 
remedy when we have the floods. But there's a lot of people out there with their whole community development movement that there was at one stage, and everybody used to run around and do it. Then they stopped funding that sort of stuff. There's still groups out there doing it, but there's nobody up there, nobody in Canberra, nobody in Sydney who are sitting down and seriously doing it. Maybe our new Labour government has got some of these ideas, but I'm sorry, you know, I was, always, was a member of the Labour Party at one stage. They're not interested in doing that. They want to sort of find people jobs. They want to find people's various other things. They've taken all the money out of that sort of community development stuff where they're allowing it to happen. How do we turn all of this stuff, which is excellent, which we need to survive in the future, how do we put the social back on the agenda? How do we stop acting as though we're economic self you know, uh, caring shits that, that, you know, <laughs> seems to be the sort of thing there. Can, can we stop being customers? What's wrong with being citizens? Because citizens have obligations and rights. Customers just get bugger all unless they've got lots of money. You know, so, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I feel awful sort of sitting here throwing cold water on it, but we were doing it and government changed. And I don't think government has changed back again. We've got a whole lot of projects working here. I know the the treasurer has sort of got quite a few going in his own area of Logan and things of that sort. There's happening there, but there's nobody changing what's happening in Canberra. Let's see if maybe all three of us can take a shot at that. Do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, uh, and it's great to have Dr. Cox here uh, to to help us uh, recognize that this is not the first time we've discovered how democracy is important and we need this. But I think this room is a starting place, right? Every time that we sit down as a group and tell each other ideas and go out with these ideas and tell our friends, what are we doing now to make people listen? Whether it's not, maybe not in Canberra yet, maybe it's only going to be in Sydney. Maybe it's going to be people working for a resilient Sydney. Right? Maybe it's going to be locally. But, you know, this is things that we can do. Uh, and this is how I teach my students as well. I'm sure you taught your students the same way. We want everyone to feel that we should be building these resources. This is a critical infrastructure for us. And if we understand that, then let's teach other people who don't know that yet. And yes, maybe it'll take us another 50 years, right, to get this back. And in 50 years, someone will sit down and say, hey, I remember in the 2020s, right? But I think that's our job. A, a very famous saying where I come from is, it's not your job to finish, but it's your job at least to try. So I, I would say that's where I start with this, recognizing the uphill battle. But we do have politicians who listen occasionally. There are, there are changes now. For example, in North America, FEMA recognizes social capital. Now, it can't necessarily put money into it yet, but it recognizes there is something called that. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. So I, I do see small changes. I think we in this room and people listening after this should think, what are we doing now to push this idea, not only in our backyards, but across the country? I, I think part of the issue here, and one of the reasons why we're talking about, about social capital and adaptation, is there's an opening now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been, I mean, the last decade nationally, there's been nothing done on climate change. There's a bit of a shift to do something on the emissions side. There's still nothing at the federal level about adaptation. Um, the state level, ADAPT New South Wales has been gutted. Um, it did both the science and the social, but some of that has moved over resilient New South Wales after the disasters. Now there is there is a concerted effort in the state. This was even before the change of government. So um, uh, to actually start doing community-based adaptation again. Okay? This is after a decade of doing none of that. So I, there is this opening. And I think one of the things that Daniel's work shows us, one of the things that Joe's work shows us is that governments can accomplish a lot without much investment, right? I mean, we're not talking about, a, you know, a $2 billion seawall. We're talking about a library or we're talking about a local hall 
or we're talking about processes that don't cost what infrastructure costs. Well, and this is the challenge for us, which is to start doing it again. And there are people in the room that have done that at the local level, at, at the state level, and, and this is the push, right, to do this, but to do it jointly with the adaptation planning and the disaster response planning that we know we have to do, right? And I think the key, one of the key things is don't hand over adaptation planning to, to just disaster response people. Let's think more thoroughly about what adaptation means uh, in this sense. Joe, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to say a bit more. Um, and thanks so much. That's um, it's fantastic to have you in the in the audience. Um, I want to pick up on your point, David, about um, there's potentially an opening here, and I think um, we're certainly seeing that up here with these sort of you know multiple compounding disasters at the community level. So um, there's some state funding, for example, for a really interesting and and um, very well embraced uh, project that's going on up here called Plan C, which is Plan Community. Um, and that's training 100 community carers and responders um, in and around Lismore and, and some of the other population centres in the, in the Northern Rivers to, to work with their communities to try and build some resilience um, in a very localised way. And, and what's really interesting is before these these kind of compounding disasters that people are ha were having to live through on what felt like a daily basis, there was less um, there was less opportunity, but also maybe less motivation in the community to to get involved and think about planning and work together and try and build build social capital, build community, that kind of thing. But I think when people have been through a disaster in, in very recently and have had to totally rely on community. Um, in all sorts of ways, I think that's 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 another kind of opening at a local level where people are much more willing to um, to to get involved and to do that kind of work. So I I think um, what you're saying, David, about this is a potential a potential window here. I I think is right. I can see some of that on the ground at the local level. Hey, thank you. Uh, this is very uh, illuminating. I just wanted to ask more about. Um, since you guys mentioned a lot of sort of place space kind of community building, right? And a lot of physical sites are uh, being you know, sort of proposed, right? Uh, also in danger of disappearing at the moment, for sure. Um, this is not exactly a kind of COVID question, but I also wonder what's the role of mass media, uh, virtual spaces, right? Uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously, following COVID, right? Although people are, you know, really sick of being online all the time now, but it is a kind of an option, right, for many people who are, let's say, physically unable to even, uh, you know, make it to some sort of place-based uh, community, right? And so I just wonder, you know, particularly after all these years, is there any new research or any new founding as to the role or function or potential contribution or perhaps shortcomings, right, in terms of, let's say, social media, mass communication, et cetera? It's a fantastic question. And in fact, part of my obsession is online social media platforms as well. And what we found is I was very skeptical if there could be, in a sense, democracy through platforms, given all the negative stuff that we see every day right, coming out of places like TikTok, out of Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. What research has shown us, our lab at least is the following, that oftentimes I envision that you either active online or, as my kids would say, in real life. And it'd be one or the other, IRL or online. And what we found, in fact, that's not true at all. What we found is people who are very active in real life are also very active online. So, for example, people in next door forums talking about voting or getting out and putting up garbage, uh, people who are talking about you know, helping a, a neighbor during COVID, 
were also the ones in the neighborhood doing those things as well. So it wasn't that you had sort of vigilantism or digitalantism, people only online and doing nothing in real life, or I think they called them clicktivists. Yeah, clicktivists. So people just clicking a button. But um, what we found, in fact, is it's a more optimistic view. I think there is going to be absolutely a more hybrid future. Uh, you will you'll see whether it's the town hall in rural areas that organize in a Facebook group and then meet in that town hall, or people can't make it there, as you just pointed out, because they have some kind of disability or they're whatever unable to get there. We have colleagues right now who couldn't get here, part of the discussion as well. So I, I actually, I'm quite pos positive about the role of uh, online spaces for the future, and not just because of COVID, but I think we have now figured out that there are serious problems with these media platforms, very serious problems for all kinds of stuff, well-being, for example, all kinds of other things. But at the same time, I think there are benefits that come with it. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much. That's a great question. Um, look, I think I mean, certainly um, the work that we've been doing on the self-organising following disaster, you know, if there hadn't been Facebook as a platform, mm -hmm. there was so much that would not have happened. I mean, rescuing people in Tinnies, for example, um, in Lismore, in the height of the flood, in the dark, was completely organised on Facebook. You know, that's and it's extraordinary how you've got um, a network that's already there on Facebook. So um, in Lismore, we have this organisation that's um, that's called Resilient Lismore that's been around since the 2017 floods, right? So it's it's actually got some real um, longevity, and and that went from about 4,000 people to 30,000 people, that Facebook group, and a huge amount of work, an enormous amount of work was done using that, using the Facebook platform, um, where it's the immediacy of that and the, uh, the capacity to be able to reach large numbers of people very quickly, I think really comes into its own in some of these situations. Um, I've also been observing with the Plan C um, project that I was talking about with the 100 um, community carers and responders, they, they, they've they come together face to face and done training together. So they're, they're, they've sort of built this network of, of trust and connection and, and um, understanding in terms of their experience of being uh, a community carer and responder. But they also now have a WhatsApp, a closed WhatsApp group. And that is unbelievably busy, that WhatsApp group. My phone pings constantly with people posting. It's not just information. It's things like motivation, encouragement, um, and ideas generation, problem solving. All of those things are actually happening on that WhatsApp group. And so that's, that's building social capital in that group of 100 CCRs together. Um, kind of in real time. And that's that's going to stand them in good stead, I'm sure, for the next event. Hi, so affecting change often requires um, people to value these things. And often, uh, you know, we have to convince other people who don't share our point of view that they are valuable. So I was wondering what the panel thinks concepts like triple bottom line accounting and the gross national happiness index that Bhutan uses to guide their central policy decisions has with this. And if you do think it's worthwhile, what, what work needs to be done to get people using them? Yeah, so actually I've looked at these a little bit with a book that I'm working on now. I think the challenge for the average person is that in the same way that GDP is both abstract and beyond their interest, uh, we recognize that happiness probably is a better measure of how I feel. But then again, whether our country is happy kind of seems irrelevant to me if I'm pretty feeling crappy right now. So I think there is valuable uh, value in these things. And I completely agree. It's actually another thing you didn't mention called resilience dividend, which is another way of calculating the benefits of building, let's say, a library versus a seawall. 
And then you think through all kinds of externalities. Okay, how many people are, are building ties there in the seawall versus the library? Or, or in the long term, what kind of positive things or groups will meet there as a result? So there are other things I've seen as well that are not the traditional cost-based accounting. Or co So I agree with you. The CBA, I think, is out of date. I think the challenge we have to figure out is no one's ever going to agree on one way of measuring stuff here. So again, one politician might say, well, I'll care about jobs for my people. That's all I care about. And one might say, well, I hear what you're saying. Show me some evidence. So for me, when I speak to politicians, I usually begin with, look, wouldn't you want the following things? A neighborhood where people trust their neighbors. A neighborhood where people go walking at night because they feel comfortable and because crime is now lower because there's this interaction. A neighborhood where, where children can go outside and play rather than being stuck indoors because of fear of crime. I go through a series of things that we can think through sort of a narrative approach. That seems much more effective to me than saying, hey, by the way, your score on the boot and happiness index is a 63.2. Because for most politicians, I think that's, again, beyond what they care about, but they care a lot about constituents. So I'm with you. I think that the way we have a measuring now what matters, GDP, whatever else, is pretty nonsensical. Um, and I think there are ways to get there. But I think for the average non-expert, that might be a step too far. Hi, I'm Sarah Bailey here from the Resilient Sydney team. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, I have a simple and non-political question. Um, my question to the group is, what was the one thing that surprised you the most, um, whether it's post-disaster in general, about the way that Australians connect as people? If you had one thing, something that surprised you, that you maybe didn't expect in your research. I'll tell you one thing I think that is surprising, and that's that there are some people in communities who keep standing up, right? And they keep going and they're working, you know, they've got, it's often, you know, a woman with five children and, and two part-time jobs. And, and you'll find this person is working 40 hours a week, unpaid and unrecognised, as we've already talked about previously, um, but that they keep going and that they seem to have this amazing a commitment and that you know it is exhausting and I think um, certainly that project that we took that we've talked about this evening about self-organizing following disaster does highlight the um the emotional and personal toll on people of of doing that kind of work that you know that the, the work that's about responding to a disaster but it is surprising um that people are still prepared to stand up and carry on doing that kind of thing um, and the kinds of people who do that, what makes them do it and how how does that work for them? Um, what's going on there? I think is it, there are a series of really interesting questions around that that we don't necessarily know the answers to yet. Here's my American answer to that question. So I've been here almost 13 years. And I think my consistent answer to that question, what surprises me and really the difference between the U.S. and here is the genuine interest in respect for the public good, mm -hmm. you know, that just the the collective and not just the individual. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know why that keeps surprising me 13 years later, <laughs> but it does. I mean, when we did this research and people talked about, you know, connection and sort of developing collective responses to climate change as the way they deal with anxiety, that was amazing, right? That this is the answer is the collective is collective processes and collective good. Um, that still surprises me, but it's genuine. I guess I'd add a quick example from Kangaroo Island, where I interviewed some of the the survivors of the fires there. And uh, Fiona owns a car caravan park on the western part of the island, which was completely destroyed. She had two hundred and fifty guests there at the time, and both police and fire came by and told her. 
we can't give you any advice. The fire might come here, might not figure out what to do yourself. <laughs> if it had been me, I would have gotten in my car and driven away. But Fiona didn't do that. She spent the next three days calling out and bringing every single person there to safety, uh, even though it completely wrecked her business and her time and she couldn't get her own stuff out in time. And this kind of idea that you know, for her, even though she had many other options, she immediately thought of them. Right? And that was incredible, hearing, hearing her talking about what happened. Um, and the funny thing was, because she built those connections, as businesses nearby failed, they said there, well, Fiona, you helped us. Can you take on my business? So now she's the owner of the gas station there, Western Kangaroo Island. She's the owner of the, of the mobile uh, homes for workers who are working on Kangaroo Island. She's also something of the, the local convenience store. So because she showed that trust and, and perseverance in other people, they gave it back mm -hmm. to her. So I think for me, that was an amazing moment. That was a great question and a really good way to end. Unfortunately, it is time. Uh, but uh, thank you uh, for coming. Thank you for participating in that conversation. I feel like we should tell you what to do next. Um, <laughs> there will be, I, and I, I genuinely think, I mean, what the work that Resilient Sydney has been doing for quite a while now. Um, and uh, I think the work that is going to happen at the state level around adaptation uh, and I think the genuine interest in in justice and social capital and infrastructure in this, it's there. So it really is up to us to just keep on pushing that. So as Justin said at the beginning, this is the first in a series on adaptation, the sort of general conversation around justice and, uh, and, and social capital. But we will be having a series of events that will address other issues of community, of finance, uh, of food systems and more. So pay attention to our socials. Thanks to Daniel um, for coming along and to Danny Selmayer, my um, my partner in everything SEI, uh, deputy director of SEI, um, who met Daniel and, and actually had this conversation to bring him in here. So thanks to Danny for that. And we'll have a lot more of these. So thanks for coming. Thanks for your engagement. And thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Joe. Thanks for being here yesterday. And we look forward to a lot more of this work and we'll get this the, the word out when that um, piece is finally published and people can see um, the results of this incredible work that Joe and her team have done. So thank you.